Greetings, strangers. It seems like forever since we last caught up. How are you doing? The Strangers Collective have had a pretty busy year so far, um, but we're glad to say that we're back up and running with the podcast now. By way of a heartfelt apology, we've decided to give you an early Christmas selection box. In this episode, Rob will be reviewing the new Justice League movie, with spoilers. I'll be discussing the first four episodes of Netflix Marvel's The Punisher. Guest stranger Ellen will be talking about Blade Runner 2049. And Rich will be going over the garden wall, discussing Patrick McHale's classic animated miniseries. Next up, we have a guest stranger, Ellen from the Burlesque Feminist Review podcast, Here's Looking at You. Ellen will be discussing the recently released Denis Villeneuve film, Blade Runner 2049. Whilst it hasn't drawn in the crowds many were expecting, this intelligent blockbuster has certainly received positive critical reviews. Ellen, welcome. Um, You're here to give us your views on the gender politics and representation in Blade Runner 2049. Can you give us a bit of background of why you were interested in this film in particular? I teach a module on uh, my degree programme on cult film. So that was the auspices under which I went to see this, just in case the students wanted to talk to me about uh, what, you know, if they'd seen it. And you actually saw this on the opening weekend, I believe. So I'm really hoping I haven't misremembered anything here. Going opening weekend, you must be a big genre fan then? I'm not actually a huge sci-fi fan. I have very specific things I'm into. They've got to offer me something really special in terms of female characters like a Sarah Connor or a Ripley or some really interesting LGBTQI characters such as Dax in Deep Space Nine. Are there those kind of interesting characters within this film's universe? So I'm going to start by saying... As far as I remember, the film doesn't pass the Bechdel test. So it does have more than two female characters in it. And those two female characters do talk to one another. However, those characters' conversations are about a man, the film's protagonist, Kay. Furthermore, I can't remember any LGBTQI characters and that Blade Runner universe as a whole, unless I'm remembering incorrectly, is also depressingly white. Uh, That said, the film still offers a number of complex female representations and I was also interested in the film's twist, which all sort of adds up to some very interesting points about Western attitudes to women. So what drew you to this film then? One of the reasons I'm so interested in this film is the film's director, Denis Villeneuve, who has form when it comes to offering up complex, well-developed female characters, such as Amy Adams' linguist grieving mother in Arrival. So it could be that I'm making excuses for him here, but I really like this film, actually. And I think it offers some interesting commentary on gender. Uh, In particular, what sticks with me now after all these weeks were two characters. Joy, Kay's holographic mail order wife. Played by Anna de Armas. And Anna, the memory maker. Played by Carla Jury. Uh, I'm going to say now, spoiler alert, I'm interested in her character because of what's revealed about her. What about the other female characters within the story? I thought that Kay's boss, Lieutenant Yoshi, was only mildly interesting. She's there, she's female, and she's played by Robin Wright, who brings with her that really interesting star text around having played a number of interesting, complex kick-ass roles prior to this role but actually I suspect we could take it out of the narrative and very little change here. Uh, Similarly love I don't consider particularly progressive as a representation of a a woman. 
we've seen many female assassins and henchwomen's uh, henchwomen in films before. So what is it about the character of Joy that's particularly sparked your interest? Joy interests me because she embodies and caters to Kay's every fantasy. That is her function. That's her sole role. So be it sexual or like a, a life, you know, his lifestyle aspirations as well. She's there to cater and facilitate, cater to and facilitate them. So just like consumer culture itself, as a hologram, she's entirely about image over substance. There is nothing tangible there. It's all about ideas. And that is it. Uh, she performs a range of established Western consumer culture female archetypes that uh, women and those who identify as women are encouraged to subscribe to in order to pass within Western society. Uh, she really makes me think of that adage about being a maid in the house and a cook in the kitchen and a whore in the bedroom. And she does all those things and she aspires to do all those things and do them as well as possible to make Kay happy. It's like a really depressing sort of 1950s housewife representation. Um, but I think it's there's something interesting being done with that. Uh, so Kay buys into those ideas hook, line and sinker. He's so desperate to pass as a human um, and he's so desperate to pass that he's not necessarily, I think he's, he's started to question and feel a little bit uncomfortable with some of the implicit assumptions that come with that. Um, the sort of the way that patriarchy works. But he's not, I don't know, there's something interesting going on there. He, he's, he's, he clearly finds it problematic, but he can't put his finger on it because uh, he really wants to buy into it. He really wants to pass. He really wants to be a human. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know, I find it problematic as well because... She only exists for him. Joy only exists for Kay. That's her function. She, you know, he can turn her off and on with a switch, uh, which is just really interesting, really interesting indeed. And then he, she even facilitates her own, for want of a better word, her own death in order to save Kay. But I think this does trouble Kay, clearly. And I think because of it troubling Kay, we are therefore directed to also find this troubling. So I don't think that this is a, a celebratory representation. I think actually we're being encouraged to think how problematic this is and think how problematic these representations and these understandings of femininity actually are. In a similar vein, then, I think the film does something interesting with Anna as well. So I'm aware that people are discussing her as being this princess in a tower awaiting rescue by some sort of gallant prince. Um, and I can see that 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 point is being made. However, ultimately, she turns out to be the chosen one, the savior, the messiah, the, you know, the future of the replicant race. Uh, and even though she's on the screen relatively little during the narrative, the plot pivots on Kay's fundamental misunderstanding of the order of things. The, the way that stuff works. Uh, so he sees the evidence in front of him about boy child, girl child, and he makes an immediate assumption uh, that he must be the saviour, that he must be the hero, that this must be his adventure, his narrative. And I really like that because that smacked for me of male privilege um, and assumptions that certain men make around their gender and their role within society. Uh, and I really like the fact that it took us along with him on that. So it's really interesting because 
again, it's challenging those ideas of men and women's places within society. So for that reason, I thought it was really interesting, actually. Thank you, Alan. And if that's piqued your interest, Alan can be found on Here's Looking At You site. That's Here's Looking At You, S-I-T-E dot WordPress dot com. For the longest time, I wanted to call this review things are getting meta all the time. This is going to be an atom bomb's worth of spoilers uh, for the new Justice League movie. It's not a review, it's just my over-obsessive thoughts on the situation. You have been warned, if you don't want the movie spoiled, go elsewhere. Now the very first scene in this uh, Zack Snyder, Josh Whedon hybrid Justice League uh, sets the movie up, I would say somewhhat perfectly. It 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 creates in me a sense of false hope to a certain degree. Let me explain. It seemed to echo what I felt were the problems with Batman vs Superman. Now I'm very aware that my criticism of Batman vs Superman and by extension this move is down to personal preference. It's down to my interpretation of the characters and what I feel they should and shouldn't do. They said the age of heroes will never come again. It has to. To be clear, for the most part, I did dislike Batman vs Superman for all of its positives, uh, namely Wonder Woman. It also had much I didn't care for. Arsehole Superman, for example, um, and some pretender running around in the Batman costume, buzzing off his tits and hallucinating every five minutes, killing people and not seeming to care who knew Bruce Wayne was Batman. There's also something I felt uncomfortable about about Batman um, leading a fight against aliens. While I can appreciate that in the comic books he did very well fight aliens alongside the Justice League, to me I'm more comfortable with the Dark Knight as the world's greatest detective, as a man who relies on his wits and deduction skills as opposed to machine guns. I'm more at home seeing him fight uh, the Joker or the Riddler as opposed to parademons. But nevertheless, here we are. So the movie opens with a lone gunman stroke thug on a rooftop. It's classic Gotham City. It's night time. There's a water tower and the gunman's on the prowl. Out of nowhere, Batman appears and roughs him up a little bit, kicking and punching him before tying him up with like a bat line and hanging him over the side of the building. And despite all of its um, visual fingerprints to the style of Snack Snyder, lots of slow-mo, dark and gritty, I did think at least they might have got something more traditional Batman here. But no, alas, it was a ploy. Batman has thrown the gunman over the building in order to lure out a parademon. Now, the parademon and Batman have an exchange, and the the parademon is scared off by a high-pitched noise and goes again. But then there's some dialogue between Batman and the gunman. The fact that Superman's not here anymore is the fact that the parademons are getting more daring. Now, again, this goes back to one of my initial problems with Batman versus Superman. In order to be able to accept this as to what's going on, you have to be able to accept that the world sorely misses Superman. 
Arsehole Superman to me was very broody. He was very selfish and I just didn't get, I didn't see why um, the population of the world would care for Superman. And by extension, I don't get why the world would miss him so much. But like, you know, it's this is Snyder's baby. We have to accept that Superman was not important to the world. And as such, his absence leaves this giant vacuum. I have with um, Snyder's version of Batman is the fact that he appears to be more Night Owl from Watchmen than he does Batman. I appreciate that Night Owl in itself was a play on Batman. It spoke, but to me, Night Owl is more reliant on technology. Uh, you see him in the Watchmen movie in his giant ship. Snyder doesn't seem to make this distinction. Um, throughout this movie, Batman calls upon a series of more high-tech and bombastic vehicles in order to help him um, fight the parademons and the armies of Steppenwolf. Uh, there's one particular good scene where they're in a glorified storm tunnel. Sorry, it's not storm, it's like a sewer tunnel. Batman calls upon the Night Crawler, which is a giant mecha-like robot that helps him scale the tunnel. Uh, again, very impressive visuals. Like nobody can criticise Snyder in terms of his visuals. They're amazing. But to me, again, that's not Batman. Um, not not to that extent to be that reliant on the technology, anyway. I did see a poster for Justice League, uh, which featured Batman in side profile. And he did look the spitting image of Night Owl. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think to Snyder, Night Owl and Batman are one and the same. He's a Batman. What are your superpowers again? I'm rich. Let's make no mistake, okay? Snyder's visual fingerprints are all over this movie. It's also worth noting that despite um, the many rumoured reshoots, which I believe cost up to $25 million, um, Josh Whedon isn't given a director's credit on this. He is only given a co-writer credit uh, alongside the uh, scribe for Argo. Hello, fact-checking monkey here. That will be Chris Terrio. He's given a co-credit for the screenplay, although the, um, the story itself is the work of before mentioned scribe. Also, it's worth noting that there's a number of scenes or dialogue taken from the trailers that don't appear in the final movie, which would lead me to believe that Whedon might have chopped some, quite a few scenes out for sake of pace and time. Um, there's a, a monologue given by Steppenwolf where he talks about how the Earth has no Green Lantern to protect it, or no Kryptonite or Kryptonian. That does, to the best of my recollection, that doesn't appear in the movie. There's another sequence in the trailer where Clark asks Lois about because she kept the ring he gave her. Does that mean she's accepted his proposal on marriage? Again, to the best of my recollection, that doesn't appear in the movie. So I think um, Whedon has been tasked with cutting this movie down and maybe getting rid of scenes which we don't move the plot forward. Certainly, if you look at Batman vs Superman, there are a lot of scenes there that just don't don't really service the plot. So I think Whedon might have had his work cut out. We treat her to a scene with uh, Wonder Woman, where she 
files um, terrorists attempt to take over it's even like a bank or an embassy now the the motivation of the terrorists isn't particularly clear and again it, it doesn't really matter it's just a showcase from Wonder Woman I believe this scene is there for two reasons firstly um, given the popularity of Wonder Woman following the success of her own movie in July I think that's been shoehorned in there but also it's set in daylight uh, which is a stark difference between the two scenes we've seen previously so I think this is Whedon's first chance to um, insert himself in terms of lightening the tone of the movie as a whole and also giving people giving the fans and the audience more of what they want to see namely Wonder Woman kicking ass and to be clear it's shot very well uh, she dodges a load of bullets she punches people out left right and center it's a, it's a crowd pleasing scene what did you do this weekend Diana me huh. nothing very interesting well here's the plot um, Steppenwolf tried to invade Earth on behalf of Darkseid many many years ago we're talking like before man roamed the earth a coalition of the Amazons Wonder Woman's people um, the Atlanteans who are Aquaman's people and agent tribes and men bounded together to um, fight him off he left behind three mother boxes which if I've understood this correctly are uh, power intergalactic power sources which can um, destroy a world and also make it over again I know a little about the new gods and the planet of apocalypse from the comics not too much but a little I know enough to know there's something called the anti-life equation which I believe is to do with transforming planets as well I'd have to read up on that more in order to completely get that but I'm under the impression that that's what that's about is the anti-life equation um, the movie states on a couple of occasions if there are three different mother boxes and if they're all put together um, Steppenwolf will get what he wants which is that the world will be transformed in his own ungodly likeness which I presume is a tribute to Darkseid who's his like intergalactic overlord so anyway the coalition defeats the coalition uh, defeated Steppenwolf Steppenwolf was driven back and the three boxes were hidden the Amazons got one the Atlanteans got one and man got one which he chose to bury so nobody could try to use it but now that Superman is dead uh, Steppenwolf has decided to come back try and find all three boxes and have another cracker taken over the earth there's a particular notable action sequence when he takes the first mother box from the Amazons a great action scene um, some, some, some great fighting which I felt was very enjoyable and nobody could accuse DC or Warner of not listening to criticisms of, criticisms of Batman vs Superman at this point or building on the success of Wonder Woman this, this movie seems to be uh, managed being less bleak it, it, it inserts Wonder Woman where needed I think the Amazons are there by no accident either there's, there's a great scene where um, Steppenwolf's trying to steal the box and the Amazons valiantly try to fight him off and run with the box although he eventually captures the box so I, I do think the success of the Wonder Woman movie has had a big impact on this script something is coming it is a movie 
which seems more content on being coherent rather than throwing any surprises at you. Uh, there's a very clear hero's journey in terms of the cyborg character, in terms of the Wonder Woman character. But that said, what it does do well is it does lay a lot of groundwork for further movers. We have a better idea who uh, Victor Stone is cyborg. We're given a better look at the Flash than we've previously seen before. Likewise, Aquaman. And to its credit, it doesn't seem to get bogged down in origins. We're told little bits and pieces, but just enough to move the plot along. And again, I think that's where Whedon earns his paycheck. He tells us little bits and pieces of how how Aquaman operates. We see him at home all bit briefly. We see um, Cyborg come to terms with his powers a little bit, but we don't get the flashback to the accident that puts him that way. Ditto with the Flash. And like I said, I, I think that's where Whedon that's where Whedon earns his money. For what it's worth, uh, the new characters that we're fleshed out, Jason Momoa as Aquaman is is fine. Um, I'm not a big I'm not a big fan of the Aquaman character, but he's presented in such a way that he's he's not tied to the ocean. It's established that he's a great warrior in and out of the ocean. And that is dependable to fight on land as well, which is quite good. I think Ray Fisher got the, the harsh deal here as Cyborg. The character spends a lot of the movie struggling with his powers. Um, the CGI for his character is very clunky. It's very ugly and lumpy looking. It's not the most original of stories, if I'm honest. Um, there's one particular scene where he meets... Wonder Woman in the street and he's trying to conceal his identity and he has his hooded top on and trying to keep to the shadows and yet you can see all of his cybernetic parts glowing beneath the hoodie which was a bit farcical but yeah he's I I think I think the, the one good thing about it is they've almost got a clean slate with Cyborg come his individual movie because they've set up the very basic premise but they've told you nothing that particularly excites you about him so a fresh writer, a fresh director could put their own stamp on that. Incidentally, he is quite um, important in separating the three mother boxes at the end of the movie because it turns out that his own powers are based on the mother box. He had found, he or rather his father had found the mother box that was entrusted to man. And then there's also the Flash, Ezra Miller, uh, who I felt was the better of the new components, if I'm honest. Barry Allen, I know you have abilities. I just don't know what they are. So you're fast. That feels like an oversimplification. I've never done battle. I've just pushed some people and run away. Initially annoying, but his kind of wide-eyed wonder grows on you. There's a lot of scenes where he's standing around talking to the rest of the Justice League, or they arrive at Luna, new sorry, new locations, and he's there like he, a gog. He obviously enjoys this. Occasionally he'll go and run off and do something and seem quite pleased with himself when he's managed to do it. Um, the special effects of the Flash are very good. We, we see him, uh, obviously, as you would imagine, run as fast as he can. But he runs up walls. He runs down tunnels. It's very excited. And I think that's got a lot of potential moving into its own movie. Justice League in itself also makes, has a, makes a healthy effort to keep long-term fans on board. Fans of the comics as opposed just to the movies. I'll drop you a few examples. 
in the initial battle with Steppenwolf back in the dawn of time, you do see a few Green Lanterns, which for me particularly pleased me. I was pleased to see the Green Lanterns there. And not to the point where they lingered on it. It was just, you'd seen someone die on the battlefield and the Green Lantern ring would fly off him. You saw a Green Lantern from a distance flying to a group of parademons smashed with a hammer. And just little things like that. There's also, the, at one point, they actually do name-check Darkseid, which I'm pretty sure they didn't do in Batman vs Superman. There's a scene towards the end where the Flash and Superman are seen working side by side to evacuate civilian population. They go one better at a post credit scene where the Flash and Superman actually race. This is classic from the comics. And it's done with, despite all of the sort of post-apocalyptic trimmings and what's at stake, it's all done with a, with a, with a love. It's done with a sense of fun, which I, again, I, I think is quite the achievement. The second post credit scene uh, involves Deathstroke the Terminator, which was a nice surprise, I think, actually gasped in the cinema, and Lex Luthor. And Lex Luthor has a wonderful line at the end of it where he asks Deathstroke, shouldn't we have a league of our own? Which is obviously is signposting the Injustice League themselves. But it was a nice little touch, and as a fan, it made me happy. Bruce Wayne, towards the end of the movie, does plot for uh, like a grand hall of justice, which I believe is the gutted Wayne Manor. And he says, we'll need six chairs, and Wonder Woman corrects him. Yes, but room for more. So obviously they're looking to expand the league. Uh, when Steppenwolf does open the other boxes, the sky turns red, which reminded me of, which I believe they called the bleed from the Infinity Crisis storyline um, in the mid-noughters. Uh, when the skies turned red, I thought that was a nice touch. The elephant in the room at this point is pretty much Superman. Superman had been teased in the posters and the promotional material about him returning, so we all knew it was going to happen. But I was interested to see um, how they introduced him. And I've got to admit, this is the best crack at Superman in the new uh, DC Universe I've seen thus far. He's likeable, he's lighter, he's all-powerful, but he, he, he's he got he's got a sense of humour as well. At one point, Lois says to him, you smell good, to which he retorts, did I not smell good before? Um, there's a great scene where Superman resurrects, and at first he's not pleased to see Batman. And he actually parrots a Batman, Batman's life, and Batman versus Superman, uh, where he says to him, let's see if you bleed also. Um, and the League have to, in one, one of the better scenes in the movie, the League have to team up to take down Batman, to take down Superman rather, which is nice. And they're battling away, but because Superman's all powerful, he's got them all on the ropes. And then Bruce instructs Alfred to um, bring forth Lois Lane. To me, that was perfect. That was just sensible. Lois Lane is the only thing that can bring Superman back on side and remind Superman of his old self. I think that's good writing. I also think that's Whedon's work. Uh, the scene where they confront Superman takes place during the daytime. I also wondered if that's um, Batman acting on advice given in to him by the Flash in Batman vs Superman when the Flash comes back from the, from the future and tells him that Lois is the key. I imagine that's all related, but it was a good scene and it's nice to see them all have to team up. Half the joy of this movie is watching the characters work in unison. 
and the idea that this Superman is somebody they can't defeat because he is an all-powerful being. It's wonderful. I would say at one point when they're fighting the resurrected Superman, there's a policeman hiding behind a police car with a gun and Lois Lane runs out in front of him and she's shouting at Superman, Clark, Clark, it's me. I get the impression in this universe nobody gives a shit about secret identities because they're all happy to call each other by their first names. But again, that's something that bothered me about Batman vs Superman and I don't think that's going to change any, any anytime soon. Superman's dialogue is evidently Whedon's. Like I said, it's snappier. There's also... Um, a kind of a few inclusions into the scripts which I imagine Whedon put there for the sake of lightening the tone. There's a scene, um, a cleaner from Star Labs goes missing uh, and his wife has on, on the news telling the cast that he's been, he's been abducted by aliens, the aliens want to stick probes up his ass and stuff. It's funny and it's evidently I think Whedon's work. Even towards the end when they're fighting Steppenwolf there's a, there's, a, there's a joy to be had in seeing them work together and the fact that they have to call upon Superman to fight Steppenwolf but he can't do it alone he needs the help of Cyborg to separate the mother boxes in terms of fighting uh, Steppenwolf Wonder Woman helps him and Aquaman helps him as well this is all a joy to see and for all of its predictability for all of its obvious turns um, and full of its doom and gloom, I think the real joy here is to see the characters working side by side. In the, the movie as a whole, it's one of the triumphs. It's Superman. This is more the Superman I'm, I'm accustomed to reading as a kid. This is a Superman I can believe in. Like I say, um, for the Donna movie, they'll make you believe a man can fly. I'm on board with this. In a nutshell, the plot is very average, um, but I think that does serve, to a certain degree, that serves the uh, runtime of the film, and it helps keep it, it helps keep things focused. There's a lot of characters to uh, touch upon, and it has a very uh, obvious, direct route through the story. I don't think this can be a bad thing. Character-wise, um, Superman, The Flash, and Wonder Woman standouts for me very much so on the other hand I very I cared even less for Ben Affleck's Batman in this movie than I did the previous movie it does the movie as well does suffer the same problems the majority of the Marvel movies do and that the villain seems to be more of a plot function than the living breathing the living breathing antagonist um, I don't think I don't think DC are gonna solve that one overnight but it would be nice at some point to actually see a villain that actually stood, for, not so much stood for something, but whose motivation you could understand as a little bit more complex than he wants all the power in the universe. Uh, but the movie is better than Batman vs Superman. Let's make no mistake. Let's make no mistake about that. It does learn lessons in terms of pace and in terms of tone, and injects some much-needed humour and daylight into the extended DC universe. It does come across as Avengers light at times, which, is, uh, which I guess is inevitable given Whedon's involvement. But I think for any kind of sequel, uh, they, they should be looking to see how they can distinguish the Justice League from the Avengers. What did the Justice League do differently? How do they relate differently than the Avengers do? It's often been said that the Avengers has the 
um, the fam the uh, the dysfunctional family um, dynamic between them, which is all well and good, given that Batman and Superman and what sorry Superman and Wonder Woman are demigods and essentially. I think that the Justice League should be more about power. I guess I'm going against what I've said already. I expect them to be a bit more serious about it. But we'll see. I don't know. I guess that's down to Josh Whedon. I'm sure he's a clever man. I'm sure he knows how the Avengers should differ from the Justice League. So in summing up, uh, um, I'm not going to say I was blown away by the movie. But it did show potential. It did more right than it did wrong. Um, if you'd given me perhaps a more compelling plot with a few more twists, I think I'd, I'd have been a lot more uh, satisfied and a lot more along for the ride. But it did show potential, and I'm looking forward as to see where the DCU goes uh, following this movie. Rob out. Remember those walks in the woods as a kid? Autumn time in particular. The smell of bonfires and wet leaves. Classic tales by the fire. Some that warmed the soul and others that chilled the bones. Nurture. Nostalgia. This is Over the Garden Wall. A whimsy trip, not just down memory lane, but one of those instant classic animated shows that works on entertaining the children, yet reminding adults what it was like to be a child. There's a Where the Wild Things vibe, a surrealism, just enough abstraction to scratch away at while draped in obvious tropes of Americana, the American Gothic, doses of Wes Anderson, David Lynch, Hayao Miyazaki and reinventions of early American animation styles that are dissected and resurrected with rigorous detail. It is as scary as it is funny, as childlike as it is grown up, as vintage as it is contemporary. The story follows two children, Wirt and his brother Gregory, lost in a dark woodland world known as the Unknown. Timeless in its whereabouts, we are, other than the contemporary dialogue, unsure of when and where it takes place. Along the way, they happen upon bizarre communities accompanied by a singing frog and a bluebird. This is a true gem. Cartoon Network's first miniseries spread over 10 short 11-minute chapters that can be watched in one sitting. It takes its time with the atmosphere, yet can be digested very quickly, which helps with the backstory and final reveal. The show's creator, Patrick McHale, who worked as creative director on Adventure Time, imbues the series with more illustrative, lyrical and artistic references, but still retains a somewhat hipster approach. Then there's the music. Ah, the music, an absolutely sublime early 20th century American sound, waltzes, a dashing of the operatic and showtime that alludes slightly to Danny Elfman's A Nightmare Before Christmas. I even thought that Tom Waits would pop up at some point. There is even a collector's edition vinyl via Mondo, the kings of contemporary illustration and all things desirable in geek culture. But you can always check out the entire album of 40 tracks, officially uploaded via YouTube. The great thing about the series, being a musical, is that it doesn't feel like a musical. The songs are so well crafted and effortless in their composition that they do not take you out of the world. They build on tone through fun skits and then often reinvent the songs again to build on a sense of dread and underlining themes. Oh, I didn't know that. Did
Did you know that if you soak a raisin in grape juice, it turns into a grape? It's a rock fact! It's unique, although it has a lot of different styles and visual references in there. Uh, you can see the likes of, you know, Wes Anderson, sort of the American Gothic uh, vibe. Um, there are a lot of illustrative and artistic lyrical references as well that people have um, obviously put into the show. And I think, obviously, Patrick McHale is art artistic director as well and creator of the show. So obviously had a lot of con uh, control over that. So I can't recommend it enough, really. Uh, it's uh, kind of, you know, really coming from that sort of those classic um, original references, you know, sort of 19th century literature and... And obviously the sound as well and the, and the quality of the, of the music sort of supports that. So, you know, for something that only lasts uh, for about an hour and 40 minutes in total, there's about uh, 10 episodes that are 11 minutes long. They're split into very distinct chapters and each has their own contained story. Yet there's a, a an overarching story which obviously leads to a very, very satisfying conclusion. So it's up to you if you watch it. You can watch it in the chapters. You could literally sit in one sit sitting and and watch it as though it's as though it's a short anima you know animated movie. And you know I would I would be watching this over and over again. I'm completely blown away by it. By it, it's very captivating. It's something where you know you listen to the music, you immediately want to buy the soundtrack. There's um, obviously guest stars in there as well well-known people such as you know john cleese as christopher lloyd chris isaac even even pops up and um, you even expect at some point you know somebody like tom waits to even show up as well because there's, there's just traces of those sorts of sounds and you know the sort of lyrical style the the visual references that, that obviously this show is is heavily influenced by this is amazing really does add a very very unique texture to it and you know it's it's about three years old now probably past people by in in the uk um you know because it's it was a mini series it's not something that's that's ongoing either so it's probably got lost out there in the uh, you know the myriad of different shows that are, that are on the network at the moment so you know i just wanted to sort of share this really with with, with all you and, and and hope you can sort of pick up a copy of it um you can buy it on region one but the quality behind it is beautifully done you've got uh, obviously elijah wood as well in the lead and the, the characters are just sublime uh, we gotta we gotta get out of here although over the garden walls many influences it is distinctly its own thing a unique and cherished piece of work a rare animation that should be savored and revisited as often as possible After weeks of speculation and delays in part due to the recent shooting tragedies in the US, Netflix finally released The Punisher. The creator of this 13-part streaming series, Steve Lightfoot, formerly of Holby City, Narcos and Hannibal, had the unenviable task of satisfying rabid fanboys, engaging the new Marvel audience with quite a grim and unlikable character, and matching the amazing introduction to Frank Castle in Daredevil Season 2. Home. 
So far, I've managed to watch four of the 13 episodes available on Netflix, and my first impressions are very positive. Lightfoot, he of Holby City, has managed to book the current trend for binge-worthy series on the various streaming outlets. Each of the earlier episodes take their time in establishing characters and situations that are bound to pay off in later episodes. Episode 1, or 3am, shows us that revenge is not the road to happiness, enlightenment or sleep. Frank is reintroduced to the audience after a bone-crunching, guns-blazing, cold opening as a broken man, automatically walking through life, perhaps he's one of the walking dead, isolating himself from others, unable to shake his horrific past. One of the many ways that PTSD impacts the characters throughout this series. The first episode has a very incredible Hulk TV series feel. You know, the one where David, not Bruce Banner, played by Bill Bixby, went from town to town trying to live a normal life, but is inextricably drawn into hulking out to defend the weak. I think a lazy creator might have followed this model onwards, but credit where credit's due, the second episode proves we're in for a cerebral and visceral 13-part series. Two Dead Men works to establish our supporting characters. Here we veer from Homeland Security, including a cameo by C. Thomas Howell, another fugitive hideout, a serviceman support group, and a private security firm called Anvil. Disappointingly, Karen Page turns up in this episode too, basically just to facilitate a plot device, and is given about five minutes of screen time to lay some exposition on the audience. On the plus side, Frank is shown in all his colours, and we see his psychotic manipulative side, especially when he's interacting with the Lieberman family. It's worth at this point praising actor Daniel Webber uh, for his portrayal of the veteran Lewis Walcott in the series. Uh, he's taken the interpretation he did of Lee Harvey Oswald in the Stephen King series 112263, seems to have ironed out some of the melodramatic kinks and it, uh, portrays a genuine damaged ex-serviceman. Um, I've got a feeling there's more of this later on in the series, but obviously I'm only at four at the moment. Episode 3, Kandahar, is the flashback episode. Here, characters' histories are introduced and we get a little more meat on the bone. Again, the series is very interested in what creates Frank Castle. So even before the massacre of his family, um, this shows how he links with some of the other players in this series. Word of warning, this episode is pretty explicit around fight scenes, gore, viscera, and actually made me turn my head away at one point. Oh, and there's also partial male nudity. Finally, uh, episode four, Resupply. Uh, the viewer's thrown back to the present day with this one. Uh, Frank has an objective and needs a little help to achieve it. This episode feels more like standard Netflix MCU fare, but again is brave enough to make Frank's counterpoint, uh, Agent Madani, played by English actress Amber Rose Reaver, a little unlikable, even though we know that she won't be the villain of the piece. I'm just hoping that they build her character over the series arc. So, my overall impression so far. 
The pluses? Well, so far the acting has been top-notch, especially John Bernthal. It's not afraid to take its time, and they let the story gestate while not really talking down to the audience or over-explaining. We're looking at you, Iron Fist. Um, I'm actually hoping that the pace over the course of the series will increase uh, to a decent finale with no damp squids in the episode 7 to 8 area. On the Marvel Netflix Universe scale, it's a lot better than The Defenders, Luke Cage and Iron Fist. It's roughly on par with Daredevil Season 1-ish, definitely Season 2, uh, but still not as good as Jessica Jones yet. So as long as you can get past or get off on the explicit violence, then I'd recommend Marvel's The Punisher, which is now streaming everywhere on Netflix. Well, that's it from The Strangers to the Multiplex for this time. Uh, we're hoping that we will have a podcast with you again very, very soon. But until then, don't be a stranger. <laughs>